Section 9 of The Golden Bough, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5. Temporary Kings. Annual Abdication of Kings and their places temporarily taken by nominal sovereigns. In some places, the modified form of the old custom of regicide which appears to have prevailed at Babylon has been further softened down. The king still abdicates annually for a short time, and his place is filled by a more or less nominal sovereign. But at the close of his short reign, the latter is no longer killed, though sometimes a mock execution still survives as a memorial of the time when he was actually put to death. Temporary Kings in Cambodia to take examples, in the month of Mick, February, the king of Cambodia annually abdicated for three days. During this time he performed no act of authority, he did not touch the seals, he did not even receive the revenue which fell due. In his stead there reigned a temporary king called Sidak Mick, that is, King February. The office of temporary king was hereditary in a family distantly connected with the royal house the son succeeding the fathers and the younger brothers the elder brothers, just as in the succession to the real sovereignty. On a favourable day fixed by the astrologers, the temporary king was conducted by the mandarins in triumphal procession. He rode one of the royal elephants, seated in the royal palanquin, and escorted by soldiers who, dressed in appropriate costumes, represented the neighbouring peoples of Siam, Anam, Laos, and so on. In place of the golden crown, he wore a peaked white cap and his regalia, instead of being of gold encrusted with diamonds, were of rough wood. After paying homage to the real king, from which he received the sovereignty for three days, together with all the revenues accruing during that time, though this last custom has been omitted for some time, he moved in procession round the palace, and through the streets of the capital. On the third day, after the usual procession, the temporary king gave orders, that the elephants should trample underfoot the mountain of rice, which was a scaffold of bamboo surrounded by sheaves of rice. The people gathered up the rice, each man taking home a little with him to secure a good harvest. Some of it was also taken to the king, who had it cooked and presented to the monks. Temporary Kings in Siam in Former Days In Siam on the sixth day of the moon, in the sixth month, the end of April, a temporary king is appointed who for three days enjoys the royal prerogatives, the real king remaining shut up in his palace. This temporary king sends his numerous satellites in all directions to seize and confiscate whatever they can find in the bazaar and open shops. Even the ships and junks who arrive in harbour during the three days are forfeited to him and must be redeemed. It goes to a field in the middle of the city where they bring a gilded plough drawn by gaily decked oxen. After the plough has been anointed and the oxen rubbed with incense, the mock king traces nine furrows with the plough, followed by aged dames of the palace scattering the first seed of the season. As soon as the nine furrows are drawn, the crowd of spectators rushes in and scrambles for the seed which has just been sown, believing that, mixed with the seed rice, it will ensure a plentiful crop. Then the oxen are unyoked, the rice maize, sesame, sago, bananas, sugarcane, melons, and so on, are set before them. Whatever they eat first will, it is thought, be dear in the year following, though some people interpret the omen in the opposite sense. During this time, 
the temporary king stands leaning against a tree with his right foot resting on his left knee from standing thus on one foot he is properly known as king hop but his official title is Faya Fulatheb, lord of the heavenly hosts he is a sort of minister of agriculture all disputes about fields rice and so forth are referred to him there is moreover another ceremony in which he personates the king it takes place in the second month which falls in the cold season and lasts three days he is conducted in procession to an open place opposite the temple of the brahmins where there are a number of poles dressed like maypoles upon which the brahmins swing all the while that they swing and dance the lord of the heavenly hosts has to stand on one foot upon a seat which is made of bricks plastered over covered with a white cloth and hung with tapestry he is supported by a wooden frame with a gilt canopy and two brahmins stand one on each side of him the dancing brahmins carry buffalo horns with which they draw water from a large copper cauldron and sprinkle it on the spectators this is supposed to bring good luck causing the people to dwell in peace and quiet health and prosperity the time during which the lord of the heavenly host has to stand on one foot is about three hours this is thought to prove the dispositions of the devatas and spirits if he lets his foot down he is liable to forward his property and have his family enslaved by the king as is believed to be a bad omen portending destruction to the state instability to the throne but if he stands firm he is believed to have gained a victory over evil spirits and is moreover the privilege ostensibly at least of seizing any ship which may enter the harbour during these three days and taking its contents and also of entering any open shop in the town and carrying away what he chooses modern custom of temporary kings in siam such were the duties and privileges of the Siamese king Hop, down to about the middle of the 19th century or later. Under the reign of the late enlightened monarch, this quaint personage was to some extent both shorn of the glories and relieved of the burdens of his office. He still watches, as of old, the Brahmins rushing through the air in a swing suspended between two tall masts, each some 90 feet high. But he is allowed to sit instead of stand, and although public opinion still expects him to keep his right foot on his left knee during the whole of the ceremony, he would incur no legal penalty were he, to the great chagrin of the people, to put his weary foot to the ground. Other signs, too, tell of the invasion of the East by the ideas and civilization of the West. The thoroughfares that lead to the scene of the performance are blocked with carriages, lamp posts and telegraph posts, to which eager spectators cling like monkeys, rise above the dense crowd, and while a tatterdemalion band of the old style, in gaudy garb of vermilion and yellow, bangs and tootles away on drums and trumpets of an antique pattern, the procession of barefooted soldiers in brilliant uniforms steps briskly along to the live strains of a modern military band playing marching through Georgia. Temporary Kings in Samarkand and Upper Egypt on the first day of the sixth month, which was regarded as the beginning of the year, the king and people of Samarkand used to put on new clothes and cut their hair and beards. There they repaired to a forest near the capital, where they shot arrows on horseback for seven days. On last day the target was a gold coin, and he who hit it had the right to be king for one day. In Upper Egypt, on the first day of the solar year, by Coptic reckoning, that is, on the 10th of September, when the Nile has generally reached its highest point, 
the regular government is suspended for three days, and every town chooses its own ruler. This temporary lord wears a sort of tall fool's cap, with a long flaxen beard, as enveloped in a strange mantle. With a wand of office in his hand, and attended by men disguised as scribes, executioners, and so forth, he proceeds to the governor's house. The latter allows him to be deposed, and the mock king, mounting the throne, holds a tribunal, to the decisions of which even the governor and his officials must bow. After three days the mock king is condemned to death. The envelope or shell in which he was encased is committed to the flames, and from its ashes the fellow creeps forth. The custom perhaps points to an old practice of burning a real king in grim earnest. In Uganda, the brothers of the king used to be burned because it was not lawful to shed the royal blood. Temporary Kings in Morocco The Mohammedan students of Fez in Morocco are allowed to appoint a sultan of their own, who reigns for a few weeks and is known as Sultan Tzatzubalba, the Sultan of the Scribes. This brief authority is put up for auction and knocked down to the highest bidder. It brings some substantial privileges with it, for the holder is freed from taxes thenceforward and has the right of asking a favour from the real sultan. That favour is seldom refused. It usually consists of the release of a prisoner. Moreover, the agents of the student sultan levy fines on the shopkeepers and householders, against whom they trump up various humorous charges. The temporary sultan is surrounded with the pomp of a real court, and parades the streets in state with music and shouting, while a royal umbrella is held over his head. With the so-called fines and free-will offerings to which the real sultan adds a liberal supply of provisions, the students have enough to furnish forth a magnificent banquet, and altogether they enjoy themselves thoroughly, indulging all kinds of games and amusements. For the first seven days, the mock sultan remains in the college. Then he goes about a mile out of the town and camps on the banks of the river, attended by the students and not a few of the citizens. On the seventh day of his stay outside the town, he is visited by the real sultan, who grants him his request and gives him seven more days to reign, so that the reign of the sultan of the scribes normally lasts three weeks. But when six days of the last week have passed, the mock sultan runs back to the town by night. This temporary sultanship always falls in spring, about the beginning of April. His origin is said to have been as follows. When Mulai Rashid II was fighting for the throne in 1664 or 1665, a certain Jew usurped the royal authority at Taza, but the rebellion was soon suppressed through the loyalty and devotion of the students. To effect that purpose, they resorted to an ingenious stratagem. Forty of them caused themselves to be packed in chests which were sent as a present to the usurper. In the dead of night, while the unsuspecting Jew was slumbering peacefully among the packing cases, the lids were stealthily raised. The brave forty crept forth, slew the usurper, and took possession of the city in the name of the real sultan, who, to mark his gratitude for the help thus rendered him in time of need, conferred on the students the right of annually appointing a sultan of their own. The narrative has all the air of a fiction devised to explain an old custom, of which the real meaning and origin have been forgotten. Temporary King in Cornwall a custom of annually appointing a mock king for a single day was observed at Loswithel in Cornwall down to the 16th century. On Little Easter Sunday, the freeholders of the town and manor assembled together, either in person or by their deputies, and, one among them, as it fell to his lot by turn, gaily attired and gallantly mounted, with a crown on his head, a scepter in his hand, and a sword 
borne before him, rode through the principal street of the church, dutifully attended by all the rest on horseback. The clergyman in his best robes received him at the churchyard style, and conducted him to hear divine service. On leaving the church he repaired, with the same pomp, to a house provided for his reception. Here a feast awaited him and his suit, having set at the head of the table, he was served on better knees, with all the rites due to the estate of a prince. The ceremony ended with the dinner, and every man returned home. Temporary Kings at the Beginning of a Reign Sometimes the temporary king occupies the throne, not annually, but once for all at the beginning of each reign. Thus in the kingdom of Jambi, in Sumatra, it is a custom that at the beginning of a new reign, a man of the people should occupy the throne and exercise the royal prerogatives for a single day. The origin of the custom is explained by a tradition. There were once five royal brothers, the four elder of whom all declined the throne on the ground of various bodily defects, leaving it to their youngest brother. But the elders occupied the throne for one day and reserved for his descendants a similar privilege at the beginning of every reign. Thus the office of temporary king is hereditary in a family akin to the royal house. In Balaspur it seems to be the custom, after the death of a rajah, for a Brahmin to eat rice out of the dead rajah's hand, and then to occupy the throne for a year. At the end of the year the Brahmin receives presents and is dismissed from the territory, being forbidden apparently to return. The idea seems to be that the spirit of the rajah enters into the Brahmin, who eats the kheer, rice milk, out of his hand, when he is dead, as a Brahmin is apparently carefully watched during the whole year, and not allowed to go away. The same or a similar custom is believed to obtain among the hill states about Kangara. The custom of banishing the Brahmin who represents the king may be substituted for putting him to death. At the installation of a prince of Carinthia, a peasant, in whose family the office was hereditary, ascended a marble stone which stood surrounded by meadows in a spacious valley. On his right stood a black mother cow, on his left a lean ugly mare. A rustic crowd gathered about him. Then the future prince, dressed as a peasant and carrying a shepherd's staff, drew near, attended by courtiers and magistrates. On perceiving him, the peasant called out, Who is this whom I see coming so proudly along? The people answered, The prince of the land. The peasant was then prevailed on to surrender the marble seat to the prince on condition of receiving sixty pence, the cow and mare, an exemption from taxes. But before yielding his place, he gave the prince a light blow on the cheek. The temporary kings discharge divine or magical functions. Some points about these temporary kings deserve to be specially noticed before we pass to the next branch of the evidence. In the first place, the Cambodian and Siamese examples show clearly that it is especially the divine or magical functions of the king which are transferred to his temporary substitute. This appearance from the belief that by keeping up his foot the temporary king of Siam gained a victory over the evil spirits, whereas by letting it down he imperiled the existence of the state. Again the Cambodian ceremony of trampling down the mountain of rice and the Siamese ceremony of opening the ploughing and sowing are charms to produce a plentiful harvest as appears from the belief that those who carry home some of the trampled rice or the seed sown will thereby secure a good crop. Moreover, when the Siamese representative of the king is guiding the plough, the people watch him anxiously 
not to see whether he dries a straight furrow, but to make the exact point on his leg to which the skirt of his silken robe reaches, for on that is supposed to hang the state of the weather and the crops during the ensuing season. If the Lord of Heavenly Hosts hitches up his garment above his knee, the weather will be wet and heavy rain will spoil the harvest. If he lets it trail to his ankle, a drought will be the consequence. But fine weather and heavy crops will follow if the hem of his robe hangs exactly halfway down the calf of his leg. So closely is the course of nature that whether the weal or woe of the people dependent on the minutest act or gesture of the king's representative. But the task of making the crops grow, thus indeed to the temporary kings, is one of the magical functions regularly supposed to be discharged by kings in primitive society. The rule that the mock king must stand on one foot upon a raised seat in the rice field was perhaps originally meant as a charm to make the crop grow high. At least, this was the object of a similar ceremony observed by the old Prussians. The tallest girl, standing on one foot upon a seat, with her lap full of cakes, a cup of brandy in her right hand, and a piece of elm bark or linden bark in her left, prayed to the god Weisganthos that the flax might grow as high as she was standing. Then, after draining the cup, she had it refilled, and poured the brandy on the ground as an offering to Weisganthos, and threw down the cakes for his attendant spirits. If she remained steady on one foot throughout the ceremony, it was an omen that the flax crop would be good. But if she let her foot down, it was feared the crop might fail. The same significance perhaps attaches to the swing of the Brahmins, which the Lord of the Heavenly Hosts had formerly to witness standing on one foot. On the principles of homeopathic or imitative magic, it might be thought that the higher the priest swing, the higher will grow the rice. For the ceremony is described as a harvest festival. The swinging is practiced by the Lets of Russia with the avowed intention of influencing the growth of the crops. In the spring and early summer, between Easter and St. John's Day, the summer solstice, every Lettish peasant is said to devote his leisure hours to swinging diligently, for the higher he rises in the air, the higher will his flax grow that season. The gilded plough with which the Siamese mock king opens the ploughing may be compared with the bronze ploughs which the Etruscans employed at the ceremony of founding cities. In both cases, the use of bare iron was probably forbidden on superstitious grounds. Temporary kings substituted in certain emergencies for shahs of Persia. In the foregoing cases, the temporary king is appointed annually in accordance with a regular custom. In other cases, the appointment is made only to meet a special emergency, such as to relieve the real king from some actual or threatened evil by diverting it to a substitute who takes his place on the throne for a short time. The history of Persia furnishes instances of such occasional substitutes for the Shah. The Shah Abbas the Great, most eminent of all the kings of Persia, who reigned from 1586 to 1628 AD, being warned by his astrologers in the year 1591 that a serious danger impended over him, attempted to avert the Odin by abdicating the throne and appointing a certain unbeliever named Yusufi, probably a Christian, to reign instead. The substitute was accordingly crowned, and for three days, if we may trust the Persian historians, he enjoyed not only the name and the state, but the power of the king. At the end of his brief reign, he was put to death. The decree of the stars was fulfilled by this sacrifice, and Abbas, who reasoned his throne in a most propitious hour, was promised by his astrologers a long and glorious reign. Again, Shah Sufi II, 
who reigned from 1668 to 1694 A.D., was crowned a second time and changed his name to Suleiman, or Soliman, under the following circumstances. The king, a few days after, was out of danger, but the matter was to restore him to perfect health. Having been always in a languishing condition, and the physicians never able to discover the cause of his distemper, he suspected that their ignorance retarded his recovery and two or three of them were therefore ill-treated. At length the other physicians, fearing it might be their own turn next, bethought themselves that Persia, being at the same time afflicted with a scarcity of provisions and the king's sickness, the fault must be in the astrologers, who had not chosen a favourable hour when the king was set upon the throne, and therefore persuaded him that the ceremony must be performed again, and he changed his name in a more lucky minute. The king and his council approved of their notion. The physicians and astrologers together expected the first unfortunate day, which, according to their superstition, was to be followed in the evening by a propitious hour. Among the Gavres, or original Persians, worshippers of fire, there are some who boasted their descent from the Rustans, who formerly reigned over Persia and Parthia. On the morning of the aforesaid unlucky day, they took one of these Gavres of that blood royal and having placed him on the throne with his back against a figure that represented him to the life all the great men of the court came to attend him as if he had been their king performing all that he commanded this last scene till the favourable hour which was a little before sunsetting and then an officer of the court came behind and cut off the head of the wooden statue with his scimitar the guire then starting up and running away the very moment the king came into the hall and the sovie's cap being set on his head, and the sword girt to his side, he sat down on the throne, changed his name for that of Solomon, which was performed with the usual ceremonies, the drums beating and trumpets sounding as before. It was requisite to act this farce, in order to satisfy the law, which requires that in order to change his name and take possession of the throne again, he must expel a prince that had usurped it upon some pretensions, and therefore they made choice of a guire, who pretended to be descended from the ancient kings of Persia, and was besides of a different religion from that of the government. End of section 9